from the Center for New American Security, this is Stories from the Back Channel, a podcast about great moments in national security as told from the inside. I'm Elon Goldenberg, the director of the Middle East Security Program here at CNAS and a veteran of the Pentagon and State Department. Today, take out your slide ruler and ledger. It's time to work on the budget. Wait, wait. Before you roll your eyes, we're going to talk about working on one of the biggest budgets in the world, the $700 billion Department of Defense budget. Still not convinced? Well, hear me out. The story you're about to hear is not just about how the budget is made, but what the budget tells us about who we are as a country and what it means for the rest of the world. Take it from Susanna Bloom. She directs our defense program here. Her career has two constants. One is a love of helping policymakers figure out the big picture. The other is a love of numbers. Susanna, welcome. Thanks, Um, Tell us, like, how did you get into the field? You know, you majored in art history as an undergrad, and you end up being, you know, a serious, uh, deep defense nerd and wonk on, like, some of the most complicated and uh, technical questions that the Pentagon deals with. How do you get there? Yeah. So basically, it goes back to graduate school. It was like spring of my first year at SICE. And, Which is uh, uh, Johns Hopkins. Johns Hopkins School yeah. of Advanced International Studies. And, uh, you know, I knew that I wanted to be in the international space, and I did find security issues kind of compelling, but I didn't have a good theory of what I wanted to be when I grew up yet. And so it was like April or May, and I still didn't have a summer internship lined up. And so my friend Phil, Phil Reiner, hi, Phil, if you're listening, <laughs> uh said, well, I've been offered two internships. Why don't you take the one I'm not going to (laughs) take? And that happened to be in the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. And I got in there that summer, and the issues were so fascinating and so compelling, and the challenges were hard. And I found that I actually did have a bit of a knack for strategy, and I was hooked. I really enjoyed being in a mission-driven organization with people who cared intensely about the work that they were doing every day. So let's try to like talk about the defense budget and sort of this whole process. I mean, mm-hmm. the first thing that I think of and the first thing you hear all the time is like we spend what? 700 billion dollars a year on defense. In defense spending. That's more than the government spends on education, transportation, energy, agriculture, space, justice, the environment, veterans, health and human services, commerce, homeland security, housing, the interior, labor, the treasury and the state department combined. Why do we do that? And doesn't even make sense. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple different ways you can come at that question, right? But the bottom line is that the size of the defense budget is a function of what it is that political leadership in the country, starting with the president, want the military to be able to do. And we in the United States have made a decision that we want the military to be able to do things like ensure freedom of navigation, to make sure that trade lanes remain open, you know, to move oil around the world, to import goods, to export goods, et cetera, et cetera. That's really expensive. The U.S. Navy says it is assisting after an apparent attack on two tankers in the Middle East. A U.S. defense official tells CBS News Iran is likely behind the attack. It takes a lot of ships. Those ships cost a lot to operate. They require a lot of people to operate them. Uh, who are very expensive to train, and we pay uh, our service members well in this country. They're not conscripts like they are in China and Russia. 
If deemed fit enough, not attending university and with no young family, then every man in Russia between the age of 18 and 27 is expected to serve a year in the military. It is a terrifying prospect for many. If we kind of look at it and break it down, about a quarter of the defense budget, a little bit less, goes to paying military personnel. And that includes things like health care. With this funding bill, we've increased the VA's budget to the largest ever. We know that health care costs are on the rise all over the economy. The same is true for the health care costs that the Department of Defense has to pay. And then you've got another chunk, about a third of the budget that is what's called operations and maintenance, right? So sailing those ships, flying those airplanes, fixing them when they break, making sure service members are trained, that all comes out of that bucket. We've increased the number of uh, combat training center rotations. We've improved equipment readiness rates, the spare parts. We've replenished our Army prepositioned stocks. And then you have two other buckets that are often referred to as investment accounts, and that's procurement, so buying new planes and ships and things, and then research and development, so designing the next generation of military equipment capability. So the time is now for the Army to modernize. Uh, to both stay ready today and to build the future force. So when you kind of look at that pie, you know, there's really only a little over a quarter of the pie left to invest in the future, to buy new equipment and to design the next generation of equipment. And so, you know, suddenly that $700 billion or 738 was the number just agreed to for fiscal year 2020 doesn't seem so big anymore. Yeah, it still seems kind of huge to me. It is but. huge. But again, it's a function of what we want our military to be yeah. able to do. And, and we right now at least have uh, global responsibilities. So, you know, there's all kinds of different ways that the military budget gets you know, sliced and diced and described. You hear on the one hand, the U.S. military budget is more than the next seven countries combined. Then on the other hand, you hear, well, but we're spending less per capita GDP than on the military than we have ever. So which one is it? So both those facts are correct. Um, the U.S. military compensates service members fairly and trains them very well and invests a lot in them over the course of their lives. Um, that's not true of Chinese and Russian conscripts. They're very, very cheap compared to a U.S. service member. Um, the second dimension of the problem is that the operational challenges that the U.S. military faces under the current strategy are much harder uh, than the operational challenges of our competitors or even some of our allies, right? It's much more expensive to keep the Straits of Hormuz open than it is to close them. The second fact that you cited, that is that the U.S. defense budget as a percent of GDP is historically low, that's also true but equally irrelevant. Just because the size of the overall economy in the United States is growing doesn't mean that the defense budget needs to grow by the same amount or the same percentage. What establishes the defense budget is what the political leadership in the country want the military to be able to do. That is the only relevant consideration. So you have the $738 billion budget. Maybe take us into the room of what goes into that. I'm sure a lot goes into it, and that's what you mm -hmm. spent a lot of your time doing. Yeah. Basically, what happens is the process is as it's laid out, and this goes back to Robert McNamara, basically, uh -huh. in the 60s, um, is a bottom-up one in large part. Immediately after taking office, President Kennedy instructed me to ensure that the United States possessed sufficient military power to protect the nation, to meet our commitments to our allies, and to discharge our obligations to the United Nations. 
So the individual services, the Army, the Department of the Navy, which includes the Marine Corps, the Air Force, will take the first swing at building the budget, basically. And so they uh, write a document that's called the Program Objective Memorandum. And in it is their like first request of like, this is what we think we need, not just for the next year, but the next five years. So that's actually a really important component of this. The Department of Defense is one of the only federal agencies that consistently does multi-year budgeting. And it allows DOD to plan effectively into the future. And it also makes sense because you're building things that take yeah. 20 years to build. you got to figure out how to. Yeah. And the services make the first cut at that. And they turn their homework into OSD, the Office of the Secretary of Defense. And there is an organization called Cost Assessment and Program Evaluation, or CAPE, that is basically the lead staff element for the Secretary of Defense and checking the services homework. But all of the undersecretaries in OSD, including the Undersecretary for Policy, the combatant commands, like European Command, Pacific Command, et cetera, basically all at that time get to weigh in and say, you know, the Air Force bought this many planes, but I think we need that many. If that doesn't get fixed, it goes to uh, what's called an issue team, if they can't get there, it goes further up the chain to a group called the Three Star Programmers, which are three stars. Three from star a, generals. From yeah. a three star generals and civilian equivalents. The penultimate step in this process is a body for which I used to be the executive secretary called the Deputies Management Action Group. And so by the time you get all the way up to them, they're pretty important. They don't have a lot of time, right? They're doing a lot of stuff. It's a reasonably small set of questions that they are looking at. Uh, and then from there, issues go on to the secretary for kind of final review. Then that whole thing gets stitched up after several months of this and gets sent over to the White House. And the White House says, is this consistent with the president's priorities? <laughs> right? Which is a great question because he's the commander in chief. In the budget, uh, we took care of the military like it's never been taken care of before. In fact, General Mattis called me, he goes, wow, I can't believe I got everything we wanted. Once that review process is complete, it gets packaged up with all of the input from all of the other federal agencies and sent over to Congress. And then it's Congress's turn, right? And they'll say, thank you very much, Mr. President, for your budget request. We'll take it from here. Today, we expect the House of Representatives will pass the two-year government funding agreement that the Trump administration and Speaker Pelosi announced earlier this week. I stand with the president, who has publicly expressed his support for the agreement on several occasions. And I'm grateful- Can you give us maybe an example? I know you can't get into details of specific programs mm -hmm. that you worked on, but of like the type of question that would come into a meeting that you would be working on, like at that deputies level, which is really what I've always found the experience inside government is the deputies level is like where, like, the most volume of decisions in some ways happen that are important happen, yeah. even if the last few are usually saved for the big bosses. So remember, a huge chunk of the defense budget, like we've been talking about, is yeah. locked up. Like your military pay, your health care costs, your things like that. There's not a lot of discretion, even for the you know secretary or this deputies group, to make changes in that space once mm -hmm. you've decided, for example, how many soldiers you want in the Army. So the... They're really, even though the decisions that they're making are really, really critical decisions, they're kind of on the margins, right? They're moving maybe 5% of that wow. defense budget through this process that takes months and months. But that 5% is a really critical 5% because it's where you make decisions about 
for example, the balance between capability and capacity. So you can have the sexiest, most souped up, technologically advanced jet in the world, but if you only have like one of them, (laughs) that's probably not a winning recipe. You need to figure out what the balance is there. This national security strategy, the current national security strategy, gave some pretty explicit guidance to bias towards advanced capability and away from raw numbers. And that decision is a result of the fact that the U.S. military's technological edge is eroding. It has eroded. Uh, And advances by our adversaries are very real. Uh, This is not a classified hearing, but I'll be happy to uh, illuminate those advances in a classified hearing, specifically with respect to Russia and China. We're slipping. We need to ensure we remain competitive by making sure that we have the better advanced capabilities. Can you give an example of that? Like, where are we slipping with the Chinese? So I'm not just going to give you an example. I'm going to tell you a little story. Going back to the Gulf War, where the United States demonstrated such incredible technological superiority over the adversary with precision-guided munitions, air superiority, systems like J-STARS that provided real advantages in command and control. Something is happening outside. Um, The skies over Baghdad have been illuminated. We're seeing bright flashes going off all over the sky. You know, the Chinese watched that, and they went to school on the way that we fight. And they've developed, since then, capabilities that are designed to counter all of the U.S. military's traditional advantages. These changes are part of China's military being on the path to becoming a more powerful force, a goal that is loud and clear in statements from the nation's president, Xi Jinping. This suite of things is what we often refer to as anti-access area denial capabilities, right? And to put it in its simplest terms, just lots and lots of missiles, right? I mean, the Chinese have figured out how to relatively inexpensively make it very, very difficult for the United States to operate far into the Western Pacific. Through lots and lots of missiles, basically. (laughs) Well, there's a little more to it than that, Alon. But but, but you overwhelm (laughs) the system with, like, basically, like, that many missiles. You make it hard for us to get in and do the types of things that we usually, our military usually does. Right, right. Well, Beijing announced that its so-called carrier and anti-ship missile has been deployed to the country's northwest. The move is a response to a U.S. Navy destroyer, the USS McCampbell, that sailed into the South China Sea on Monday. It was conducted... Um, And so figuring out how to counter their counters or develop new advantages that they're not prepared to, to combat. That's the challenge right now. I mean, does it make sense for it to go bottom up? Do you sometimes just get lost in the minutiae? Like, and, you know, as opposed to, on the other hand, like more of a directive from the top down? How does that, like, work yeah. top down versus bottom up? Yeah. So um, I am not one of those people who says the whole system is broken, light it on fire, start again. But is it optimal? No, it's not. It takes really significant leadership at the highest levels in order to take money from someone and give it to somebody else. And we saw a pretty interesting example of this, actually, in the last budget cycle, where Mark Esper, now the Secretary of Defense, was at the time the Secretary of the Army, led a process which was known informally in the Pentagon as Night Court, where both the Secretary and Chief of Staff analyzed nearly everything the Army is spending money on, looking for ways to channel money to the service's top six modernization priorities. 
Yeah, and they call it night court because basically, like, you'd have everybody wheeled in one right after one program after the other to, yeah. like, to get their abuse yeah. from the. Yeah, well, not abuse, but yeah. to like, to make their case, right? To <laughs> yeah. to argue their cause. Mm-hmm. And as I understand it, actually, quite a lot of the meetings happened like either at night or in the early morning because it's the only time they could find in the schedule. Mm-hmm. And these are very, very busy people with a lot of responsibilities. And so I think Secretary Esper has actually um, made some indication that he intends to do this to the department as a whole, which in my view is great news. That will allow us to begin the shift of over $30 billion over five years to really modernize the force, to move away from the legacy of the last three or four decades into the future. And it actually goes to something else I think you and I have talked about before, which is, um, I mean, look, the impression sometimes is like, Stick with the status quo and spend billions of dollars because nobody's forcing them to make tough decisions. Yeah, I think that there definitely is this perception that, you know, the Pentagon is so flush with cash that they're just, you know, spending it very cavalierly. Gigantic military budget would be a lot easier to forgive if it were actually making us safer. But a lot of it is not. We regularly throw unimaginable sums of money at military projects that show no signs of ever being useful, like flying over football games or, you know, invading Iraq. That is definitely not the case. Now, can the Pentagon be better stewards of taxpayer dollars? Of course, always, right? And that always needs to be a priority. But in my experience, decisions to spend money are not made cavalierly at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite. So another criticism frequently levied at the Pentagon is that they're too slow. I think the majority of companies that end up not working with the department, they do it for business reasons. It's just too damn hard to work for the department. It takes too long. And they're not agile, and you can't react to changing circumstances fast enough. Well, you know, the reason that those complaints have some merit is because decisions, you know, this this process that I've described in terms of how you figure out what the budget is in any given year takes 18 months, 24 months to get through. I mean, these are decisions that are considered very carefully and labored over and analyzed. I mean, there's a lot of analysis that backs up these choices that the department is making. And so this idea of kind of like frivolity that they're just kind of throwing money around is totally inconsistent with my experience of the building. I mean, how many hours a day were you sitting in these types of meetings when... uh... Yeah, I mean, during peak budget season, it was like four to six hours a day. Yeah, well, you and I were talking about uh, one case, um, at least right before I came into the Pentagon, and I think actually right before you came into the Pentagon, too, um, which I think is a good example of all these Secretary Gates and some of the decisions he made when he first came in during the Iraq War. You know, Secretary Gates was a really good example of some real top-down intervention. The thing that we're talking about here are acquisition of many, many MRAPs, mine-resistant, ambush-protected vehicles, which were badly needed immediately to protect service members on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan. Our soldiers have been fighting in Iraq for coming up on three years. A lot of us are getting ready to move north relatively soon. Our vehicles are not armored. We're digging pieces of rusted scrap metal and compromised ballistic glass that's already been shot up, dropped, busted, picking the best out of this scrap to put onto our vehicles to take into combat. On the other hand, Secretary Gates made a decision to cancel the F-22, which is an advanced fighter aircraft. The grim reality is that with regard to the defense budget, we have entered a zero-sum game. Every defense dollar diverted to fund excess or unneeded capacity 
whether for more F-22s or anything else, is a dollar that will be unavailable to take care of our people, to win the wars we are in, to deter potential adversaries, and to improve capabilities in areas where America is underinvested and potentially vulnerable. There is absolutely no doubt that those MRAPs saved lives. On the other hand, the cancellation of the F-22 has now resulted in a pretty serious capacity problem in the Air Force, where the old F-15s are now so run into the ground they can't fly, and the replacement that was supposed to come in and fill that gap was canceled by Secretary Gates. Today's Air Force is the smallest, oldest, and least ready in its history. We have and will continue to fly, fight, and win, but at a cost to our airmen and their families who remain globally engaged. And so... Was he right to cancel the F-22 and buy all those MRAPs that are now rusting in the desert because we don't need them anymore? Well, they saved a lot of lives. So I have a very hard time saying that he was wrong, but we're still left in a pretty not great position now. And this is just one example of, you know, frankly, impossible decisions that senior leaders in the Department of Defense and the White House and in Congress have to make every year as we go through this process. So you were, you know, one of the people doing a lot of work on the budget when the sequester happened, which was a major event for the Pentagon and for, for the U.S. government as a whole. Maybe you can talk about that experience. I think the most important thing to remember about the Budget Control Act, which put in place this mechanism of sequester, is that it was meant to be so horrible that Congress would never let it happen. Maintaining fighter jets and warships at the ready providing care at military hospitals. Now the Pentagon has told Congress these workers will be forced to stay home one day a week without pay if mandatory spending cuts are not averted. The president listed off fewer police and firefighters, longer airport security lines, lost jobs, criminals going free, teachers being laid off. Um, and they failed. They failed to make a deal. <laughs> um, you know, this horrible, horrible penalty that was never supposed to happen, happened. Well, the sequester deadline has come and gone, and this morning the federal government must begin the week with $85 billion in automatic spending cuts. Political analyst Mark um, And it happened us. halfway through the fiscal year. So the department was spending money, assuming that it was going to end up getting, in the long run, about $30 billion more than it did. Um, and that's very hard to absorb in the middle of the fiscal year, right? Because you've already signed a contract to buy a ship. You're not going to cancel that necessarily. You're not going to, you know, permanently lay a whole bunch of people off in order to make up that deficit, right? Alon, I don't know if you were in the department when this happened, but civilians in the, across the Department of Defense were actually furloughed. The furlough days will be spread out over the last three months of the fiscal year, and that ends in September. Employees will have two furlough days per pay period. Hagel noted the original furlough plan had been for 22 days and added that Pentagon officials did all they could to spare workers. Uh, exercises were canceled, which was the genesis of significant shortfalls in military readiness, meaning the preparedness of the military to go operate, fight wars, do the things it needs to do. You know, the effects of that event are still felt today. While nothing can compare to the heartache caused by the loss of our troops during these wars, no enemy in the field has done more to harm the combat readiness of our military than sequestration. You know, the other effects are felt kind of more by the operational community or even by defense industry. If defense industry doesn't know year on year how many 
widgets the Department of Defense is going to order because uh, the Department of Defense doesn't know itself how many widgets it's going to order because it doesn't know how much money it's going to have, you know, sometimes in the next six months, let alone next year. That becomes a really difficult challenge, particularly for smaller companies, uh, small and medium-sized businesses, family-owned businesses, to manage a workforce under those conditions when things are so unpredictable. We are sitting here as Dante Valve ready to hire people, ready to give raises to the people that we have, and we're not doing either of those things because of the sequestration, and we just don't know what's going to happen in the future. And that's not only a problem for the private sector, the people who own those companies, it's a problem for the Department of Defense. Because if they can't access the spare parts that they need to repair their aircraft, they're not flying those airplanes. And that's a really critical readiness issue. One thing we constantly hear about is sort of these stories of cost overruns and weapon systems that just end up costing billions of dollars more than yeah. you expected. Mr. President, the time is long overdue for us to take a hard look at the enormous amount of waste, at the cost overruns, at the fraud and at the financial mismanagement that has plagued the Department of Defense for decades. And what do you say to people who say, like, it's kind of evidence of how much money the Pentagon wastes? Mm -hmm. I have two answers to that question. The first is, when you are building something that has never existed before, that is a true leap ahead in terms of technology or military capability, it is impossible to say with certainty at the outset of that process either how much it is going to cost or how long it's going to take. And that's not because the Department of Defense doesn't try. <laughs> um, they try very hard to estimate costs, et cetera, et cetera. But when you are really pushing the envelope, when you are developing something that has never been seen before, you just can't know with certainty you know, what it's going to cost you. But to an extent, speed and agility and performing to cost and schedule are not always totally compatible. You have to make trade-offs. In other words, you need to take, if you want to move quickly, you're going to accidentally spend some money on things that... You're going to you're gonna take risk, yeah, right? You mistakes. want to move fast, yeah. you're going to take risk. You know, we've been hearing from Donald Trump, at least, that we want to pull back, that we want to do less. We have won against ISIS. We've beaten them, and we've beaten them badly. We've taken back the land. And now it's time for our troops to come back home. And yet you have a pretty dramatic increase in the defense budget coming from the Trump administration. So how can we both be doing less and spending more? So I'll just offer that there's a lot of cognitive dissonance in the policies of the current administration. You know, I, I can't even begin to explain most of it, but I think the answer is that, well, as the president is an isolationist, the people that he's selected to serve as at the senior most levels of the Department of Defense are not, you know, starting with Secretary Mattis at the beginning of the administration and continuing since then. And so, you know, the national defense strategy, if you read it, is not an isolationist strategy. It is very much focused on providing the military capability to ensure that the United States remains a leader globally. And that is the guidance that shapes the defense budget in the end. I believe we have a competitive advantage against any potential adversary defined as the ability to project power to fight and win at the time and place of our choosing. But as members of this committee know, 17 years of continuous combat and fiscal instability have affected our readiness and eroded our competitive advantage. As the Secretary highlighted, China and Russia have capitalized on our distraction and restraints by investing in capabilities specifically designed 
to challenge our traditional sources of strength. After careful study, the deployed capabilities intended to contest our freedom of movement across all domains and disrupt our ability to project power. So, you know, it sounds really tough, but at the same time, like, what did you ultimately take out of that experience of working at the Pentagon? You asked me at the beginning, you know, whether, I forget what you said exactly. It was something about, you know, whether, you know, it was like really awe-inspiring to be in the room when a lot of these decisions are being made or discussed. And like, the truth is, it is, you know what they say about raising kids? Like the years are short, but the days are long. It's sort of true about like existence in DOD as well, right? In that like in the moment, it can be intensely boring. And then when you take a step back and look at what you've done, you know, you realize that decisions that you supported or that you helped make or, you know, whatever are um, hugely consequential in the long run. And so some days you, you know, you, I would leave the building just thinking, man, we really accomplished something here. And, you know, we've, we've made some choices that are going to make the country safer, you know, sometimes decades into the future. And that is really thrilling. You know, on the other hand, some issues are just like Groundhog Day, where year after year you find yourself having the exact same conversation over the exact same thing. And, you know, either all the options are bad and so you can't really make a decision because it's just, you know, nothing is appealing or, you know, the institutional interests are so entrenched, you know, that coming to a clean decision is just really, really tough. And those days are hard. You know, when you're talking about like hundreds of millions of taxpayer dollars, American lives at stake, the decisions that you're dealing with every day are so consequential that it, it does kind of wear you down after a while, uh, which is why it's you know, a feature of our system that you get fresh blood in every now and again. It's hard. It's hard work. Susanna Bloom is a director of CNAS's defense program. Previously, she was deputy chief of staff for programs and plans to the deputy secretary of defense. Next week on the podcast, the high stakes job of working advance for the State Department, where one screw up can turn into a massive international incident. The stuff that was really odd in North Korea were the side events. One was a, a rather bizarre circus where they had live dancing bears. But in order to get the bear to dance and to go across the high wire, they had an electric cattle prod. So we, of course, recommended we not do the electrified dancing bear um, <laughs> entertainment thing. That's next week on the podcast. Stories from the Back Channel is a production of the Center for New American Security and is produced by RES Audio. I'm Elon Goldenberg, and I've been your host. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, and while you're there, leave us a review.